The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, crack a bag of Zagnuts and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 365 with guest Daniel Simmons, recorded live Tuesday, July 29th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man whose bumper sticker says, Honk if you're hungry. Well, what did you think it was going to say? Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here from New London, Connecticut. Richard's still on vacation, but he'll be here for the interview in just a minute. Uh, I'm going to forego Better Know a Framework in email today in lieu of something else, which I've been saving up. Um, as you know, we have transcripts of the shows, and um, I don't know, they're, they're lagging about, uh, well, I don't know, a little bit behind, quite a bit behind anyway. But eventually we, we transcribe the shows and... Um, Every once in a while, uh, the guy who proofreads what we get back from the transcriptionist finds really funny typos. And we don't really know if these are from a machine that listens to the tran, you know, listens to the audio and then spits them out and then just they get missed. But some of these are really funny. So this is from uh, Hansel Minutes, actually. Hansel Minutes, uh, show 119. Uh, where somebody said, going to go to our managers, 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 and the typo is, going to throw me out in the Andes Mountains. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. Here's another one. The actual, uh, the actual text for this one was, more cream than maybe Clapton alone. I guess we were talking about Eric Clapton and cream. And, and it came out uh, more clean than maybe clapped them alone. That's a good one. <laughs> Here's another one. A bunch of department stores, Macy's, Riches among them, came out. A bunch of department stores, Masons, which is or among them. 
Oh, that's not too funny. This one's pretty good. The text, a part of that is because it's supplemented by the Mashantucket Pequots, the tribe that runs Foxwoods Casino. Turned out <laughs> a part of that is because it's a submarine by the, quote, National Tuck Off Pequots, end quote, <laughs> to try that runs Foxwoods Casino. <laughs> All right. Too much silliness. Before we uh, start the interview, I just want to remind everybody about uh, the opportunities that exist in New York City for developers and Dubai. If you want to go to the other side of the world or if you want to work on surface applications, uh, Infusion is looking for a few good people who are willing to travel and um, uh, who have uh, who just want to do something different. If you're interested in that, uh, you can read about the New York City tour at shrinkster.com slash kh6 or send me email carl at franklins.net. With that, let's uh, introduce our guest. Daniel Simmons is back. He's a dev manager for the Entity Framework and Link to SQL team, where his mission is to build a team and a product that will fundamentally change the way we build data-centric software. He's been at Microsoft for 10 years, working on a variety of products. Before coming to Microsoft, he worked as a consultant, founded an ISP, and engaged in various other software pursuits. Welcome back, Danny. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. And uh, thoroughly enjoyed those uh, episodes of DNR TV we did on the Entity Framework. Yeah, that was a good time. Uh, And, uh, you know, already getting some feedback from folks. Sound like uh, some people are getting a good intro that way. Now, um... Well, this is the second time you've been on the show, right? Yep. The first time we were talking about it when it was nascent and it was up and coming, the, the beta, we hadn't, nobody had really seen it yet, I think. Or had I it think just that was be- even before uh, there really had been decision around whether it was shipping with 2008 or how it was even going to be packaged. It was really the beginning. Right. That's right. We had, we had maybe done a, a CTP or something, but it was very, very early. And we've had a long, uh, you know, interesting road since then. But uh, now we're ready to, you know, uh, get it out into the hands of people for real. So it's very exciting. And we've also done a couple of shows uh, with non-Microsofties on the Entity Framework. I think at least two. Uh, Right, Richard? Yeah, uh, Julie Lerman for sure. I know it's come up in conversations in lots of other shows. So it's it's a hot topic. This whole uh, data architecture discussion between Link and EF... Like we're in a we're in a strange new world, and you know we invariably get raked over the coals for not asking the quote unquote hard questions, right? From the uh, from the the people who aren't happy with the design. Sure, is that a good place to start? Because should we just address some of that? Uh, sure, we can certainly talk about some of those things. It uh, it is a uh, you know it's fun to be working on, but also kind of stressful sometimes to be working on a project that uh, you know is right in the middle of where a lot of people spend their time. Right. And uh, so you know we have had a whole lot of uh, uh, folks giving us feedback, which is great. It's great to hear you know the different ways that people are building software and the the requirements and the things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, and you know we've been able to take certain bits of that feedback into into v1 of the entity framework and there were you know a number of you know real concrete kinds of changes that we made over the last couple of years in response to that kind of feedback yeah and then there are other parts where you know uh there are things that we are not able to do that quickly given many priorities right and i, I really think a lot of that uh 
a lot of that controversy, a lot of that, the different kind of hard questions come from folks who have a, a mental picture of the entity framework as a very particular kind of ORM product. Right. And, and you know, something that's, that's sometimes hard for us to explain in a way that makes real sense um, is that the entity framework is designed to do some ORM-like things but really has a, a broader and somewhat different mission. I had a sense early on in this that you really were resisting relating entity framework to ORM. Like that you really had a a different view here. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, we really tried to talk about um about a a vision for a data platform that involves, you know, a lot of different kinds of resources we have around Microsoft that make up parts of the overall application platform. And those things that connect to data, you know, that's a very broad set of things that's not just about ORM. And and the vision is how do we Build some some new kinds of things that allows you to sh- sort of share your learning and your knowledge and the investment you make in in your data in a whole bunch of different kinds of venues and and the, the objects in your business logic in your classes are one of those venues but reporting and synchronization and web services and workflow and so many other things also fit into the overall solutions that you build. Well, data comes up in a lot of different ways, and a lot of people handle it in a, a variety of ways. I think that's why there are so many ORM solutions out there in the first place. Uh, definitely. You know, that people handle it in different ways, either because they have different kinds of requirements or they have different backgrounds or or maybe their application, you know, is not a brand new one they're writing. It, had, it has a history. and uh, And we're really trying to say... Hey, are there some ways that we can um, add value in a bunch of these different kinds of scenarios uh, and really do some things that kind of tie together, if not the exact thing that you do with your data in these different ways, at least the learning that you have and the kinds of tools and experiences and the ways that you reason about that data. And the the design that you came up with, how far removed is it from what's shipping uh, from the original design? That's a good question. I would say that, you know, the the truth of the matter is the vision that we have for this data platform is big enough that it's not something that we could ever deliver in a single release. It really is a, you know, five or ten year plan kind of vision. And, uh, and we had to take and say, what is the piece that's the right first step that we can do in our first release? And, and then not only, you know, figure that out, but then tune that based on the feedback, and we have made a, a number of changes to sort of say, well, we want to be adding value each at each release, even though we're targeting a, a long-term vision that is where, the, where you know, even more value comes, uh, but won't be fully realized for a while. Um, and, you know, things like when uh, folks, you know, gave us the feedback, uh, hey, we really want to focus on persistence ignorance. We build, When we build the objects, uh, in our domain models and things like that, we really want to remove persistence concerns from that business logic. Um, you know, we went and took that to heart and started looking at ways that we can incorporate those things into the entity framework and still stay true to the long-term vision. Hmm. And in V1, there were some concrete changes. We didn't get to a fully persistent, ignorant kind of solution. And if we had been building just an ORM, that would have been silly, and we would have completely focused on that and done that for V1. But uh, given the context of everything else that was going on, that couldn't be our number one priority that was, you know, that had to sort of fit into the bigger scheme. So we made some progress on that in V1. 
But it is just a first version. I've got to think you've got several other versions mapped out. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. I mean, you know, at this point, as we are uh, wrapped up on V1, we've already begun uh, working on, on V2. And, uh, you know, since we are shipping with SP1 instead of with with uh, 2008, that meant that we got a late start on V2 compared to, to where the rest of uh, .NET Framework and Visual Studio teams are. So we're kind of working hard to catch up and make sure that we add as much value as we possibly can in V2. And then, you know, we're already thinking ahead to, all right, what are the things that land in V2 versus what happens in V3? Um, and how does that match up to, you know, the other releases of Microsoft products going on? Because, you know, a big part of the value uh, in this overall vision is how does it connect to, you know, things going on in other parts of SQL Server, things going on in, in all different parts of the company. And it's interesting you bring up SQL Server, because I remember back in 2006 when we were having these early discussions at the MVP Summit, that there was some SQL Server guys there talking about how important Indie Framework was to them from a replication point of view. Definitely. Um, you know, a, a big part of of the realization that led to some of the, the plans for the Entity Framework was that we have multiple different components in in the kinds of things that we deliver in the data platform that we have today, you know, what you have in, in 2008 and in SQL Server 2005 or 2008, um, where you have similar kinds of problems that had to be solved by multiple different sort of products or, or components and ended up being solved in different ways, you know, uh, replication being one of them, reporting services being another, where I don't want to think about my data just in terms of the shape of the database. I want to build a higher order sort of concept of my data, and I use that to to have these sort of conceptual entities that I want to do reporting on or that I want to synchronize atomically, even if they live in multiple different tables in the database. Um, well, this is so the way we draw it on the cocktail napkin, right? The classic... ER diagram is this the concept of a customer might be connected to a bunch of other things but it's a customer a- absolutely and and if I have a customer that I that I drew on my uh, on my diagram and now I want to take it offline because I'm going to write a rich client that runs in a uh, you know an occasionally connected kind of fashion I've got to be able to synchronize that customer atomically you know having one of the two tables that make up the the rows for a customer is not terribly useful for me right. Yeah, I want to think of the customer entity as a whole. Exactly. And so, so you know, even, even apart and separate from what we're doing in the entity framework, we already had a number of these kinds of efforts around the company where people had already built solutions to, to allow developers to specify a customer, to specify how it comes from multiple tables and those kinds of things, and to start reasoning about the relationships. And you might build a solution and find that you had to redefine your customer you know, three or four different times in three or four different syntaxes and with three or four different tools. And and we just don't maintain that stuff when you have so many different ways. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so, so, you know, uh, one of the first ideas here was let's take and build a, a syntax, go look at the requirements, go look at the scenarios for these kinds of things and build a way to start thinking about how, how can I even if I if I do sometimes want to have different views of the customer for different applications, maybe what I do for reporting is not the same as what I do in my business logic, um, I still want to be able to not have to learn three or four different tools to do a very similar kind of task. 
And, uh, and so, you know, we, we started off by saying, hey, let's define this data model and let's start building up the set of services around that data model that then will allow us to plug into to all different kinds of things in, in the overall data platform. Dan, can I ask you to um, comment on some of the, the issues that people have brought up that, um, about, about the entity framework? Um, how, does, how does the entity framework work in a test-driven development environment? Sure. Um, so in, in V1 of the entity framework, you can certainly do test-driven development kinds of things with it, but uh, I think there has been a, a, a fair amount of feedback and, and definitely justified that there are some test-driven development practices that folks do that, are, that the entity framework doesn't do everything that it could to help you make that easy. For example, it's it's uh, more difficult to set up dependency injection kinds of frameworks which make it easier to mock things with uh, an entity framework model with the tool straight out of the box uh, than we'd like it to be. And so in a, in a future release, uh, you know, that's one of the things that we're definitely looking at. How can we be more sort of friendly to dependency injection, just as an example? Okay. Um, but, but, you know, we practice test-driven development on the Entity Framework team as we're building the framework and certainly as we build some of these applications. And it's definitely something you can do. It's just a matter of sort of how much did the framework, you know, make that really easy for you or how much of it was a little bit more difficult. And the decision to use lazy loading, or um, I guess that's been a point of contention too? That definitely has been a point of contention. And, and it comes down to something that, that, you know, we really struggled with on the Entity Framework team, um, the the feedback that we get from different kinds of customers and from our own experience in different kinds of domains. On the one hand, because we have such a strong, you know, foundation in the ADO.net team in general, um, we had a realization that working with so, uh, a number of customers building big solutions and looking at their data access layers, we discovered that when you make a round trip to the database is very critical for many applications. And if you don't pay careful attention to when that doesn't doesn't happen, it can cause a real maintenance nightmare in the long run. Okay. Um, but on the other side of this is the story that says, hey, I want to build my business objects and I want them to be ignorant of persistence concerns and uh, so that I can not have to litter my business logic code with things that don't really directly relate to that domain. And so I want implicit lazy loading to just handle those things for me. Um, and these are really, you know, sort of competing kinds of demands and, and very different kinds of perspectives. And so our decision in the, for the entity framework for V1 is to say, well, we're going to start off by building a very explicit model so that it is possible. And in fact, you know, you're kind of encouraged to do things where whenever you're going to do something like a round trip to the database, it's, you have to be explicit. Okay. But, you know, an explicit model, you can layer an implicit model on top of. And in fact, we already right. have a, a blog post that shows how you can do lazy loading, implicit lazy loading on top of, of what the framework delivers in V1. And what about going the other way? I mean, would it be impossible? It's it, not necessarily impossible, but it gets very difficult. Um, in, in, as an example, in Link to SQL, you know, some of the early uh, uh, betas of that, uh, you know, just had implicit lazy loading, and they got this same kind of a feedback that, hey, sometimes I don't want that to just happen uh, without me being aware that a round trip happened there. And so they then later added an option where you can turn it off. Okay. Um, and and uh, so I think, you know, as we look at V2 of the Entity Framework, we'll probably go the other way and we'll say, okay, 
by default, implicit lazy loading is turned off because we want to make sure that you're reasoning about those things. But if you make a decision for your environment that you want implicit lazy loading, then there's mm-hmm. a way you can opt in and turn that on. Okay. It's still an option now, right? So It's I mean, an option now, but you just have to build more of the infrastructure. You don't have to go get right. a sample or build some more things on your own around sure. it. And sure. we just make that easier in the future. What about um, source control? This is something Oranini was going on and on and on about at uh, yeah. DevTeach. Yeah. Um, well, so it, it is interesting that the, the Entity Framework team, the broader team, is really divided into two parts. One part that's focused on the runtime, that's the part that I'm really the, the uh, dev manager for, you know, building the, the framework itself. And then the part that's focused on the designer and the tooling experience. And, uh, and really, Oren's uh, frustrations and, and some other folks have, have brought up uh, were especially difficult in some of the earlier betas. Still not as great as I would like it to be in V1, but, but are really around the, the file artifacts that are produced by the designer. And, oh. and the concern is that you go, if you have multiple people working with the designer, uh, on the same model at the same time in a source control system, and then you go to deal with the merge conflicts, sometimes the way that the designer outputs the files, you know, those merge conflicts can be more difficult than they ought to be. So is this an issue of uh, how Visual Studio works um, just by default? Well, it's not about Visual Studio per se. Although it is a designer. It's more specific to the Entity Framework Designer, but it is a kind of problem that shows up in Visual Studio fairly frequently. Mm. You know, if if you design a file format to be edited directly in a text editor, then sort of by the very nature of that exercise, the things that people type tend to be more localized and merge conflicts are much more obvious. Oh, I see. If you use a visual designer, then there's a tendency to have the persistence format of what you did visually to not be so easy to merge. And and we took sure. some steps in in before V1 ship to kind of reduce some of the pain of that. And I think there are some more steps we can take to get it better. Um, but but you know I I have to also say that we often discover that that uh, on many teams the set of folks who are really working on making changes in the visual designer for the model is much smaller than the total set of folks modifying the code that uses or adds business logic to the classes and things around the model. Right. And and so, yes, the, there are some concerns here, but it tends to be, you know, not as big of a number one priority kind of uh, focus thing because you don't have, you know, 50 people all adding new entities and changing the properties on entities all at the same day, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. I imagine that that job usually falls to one or two people and probably in different parts of the application. Obviously, it depends on your individual development team, but I think that that is a fairly common pattern that you have a relatively smaller number of people who are doing the model changes. Yeah. And, and, you know, in addition to kind of the broad betas and things like that, we've also had some, you know, much deeper um, TAT program engagements with some people building real applications on any framework. And, and that's really the, the kind of pattern we've seen from, the, from those folks, that this was usually not nearly so big an issue. Okay. Uh, what about partial classes? Has that caused a problem? Well, I, I, I think for the most part, people don't have a problem with partial classes per se. I think the real question comes down to, did you use a code generator to generate classes for you, or did you write them all yourself? Okay. And, um, and the Entity Framework supports both of those in V1. That's one of the things that we did as a, as a reacting to feedback that we got uh, you know, a year or two ago. 
was to make it possible to write your own classes, and as long as you implement certain interfaces, you don't have to use the code generators. Uh, but for an awful lot of folks, you know, they find that using the code generators just, you know, saves them a bunch of work they would have had to do by hand, and then they can put their stuff in the partial class, and, and that seems to work really quite well. Mm-hmm. I also asked you on, on DNR TV how the Entity Framework works with other frameworks, like existing frameworks like, uh, well, CSLI.net, for example. You know, how, how, where, did, where does the Entity Framework sort of fit in when you're using an application framework like that? Yeah, I think it it depends a lot on the framework. You know, different frameworks are going to be much more, uh, some much more intrusive than others. I would say uh, CSLA.net, as an example, is one where, um, you know, I haven't spent uh, time talking to Rocky specifically about this, but my impression is that, you know, he invests very, very heavily in the the richness of his sort of middle business objects. Yeah. And he want, would tend to relegate the, uh, the Entity Framework or something like Link to SQL to a very explicit data access layer um, that would be a separate thing that then he would project into his business logics uh, in a different step. And, and the Entity Framework could work perfectly well in that kind of environment. I don't know that, that he or if someone else ha- has actually built a lot of things to integrate, but I, I have heard, uh, you know, talk of him using Link to SQL, and I think many of those things would trans- transition well. I think over time, I'd like to see a world where um, you could imagine the entity framework directly materializing objects into a layer like CSLA.net and not having to have a separate layer for your business, uh, for your data access. Right. Um, you know, letting the framework be that layer, and but that's a that's a decision that you know you need to make for your particular application. Sure, and every, everybody makes this decision whether you use entities or business objects, and the, these are two different styles and two different architectures. The, the entity framework does it sort of let you take either of those positions, or or are we relegated to keeping business logic out of the entities? No, I think I think it definitely lets you take either of those positions. Um, you can, you know, obviously you can use it to implement a data access layer separate from your business objects. Um, but at that point, you're you're not getting all of the power of what the Entity Framework could do for you. And for some set of applications, you know, the real reason why we usually have a separate data access layer is we want to have this separation of concerns and mm-hmm. isolation from changes on the database. And, right from different back-end databases and those kinds of things. And uh, one of the things that, that we'd like to make possible, and I think any Framework V1 uh, goes a long way towards making possible, is saying, why should you write that data access layer by hand? Why not let the framework supply that and give you your business objects directly and then add business logic to them? Right. That's what the F does. That's what it exactly. does. It, it does that abstraction for you. Yeah. Yep. And I, th- I think over time, you know, just as we add more and more of the functionality of the framework, we'll be able to, you know, increase the flexibility of things you can do in the business layer, increase the kinds of mechanisms for adding business logic and those kinds of things so that, um, you know, my goal certainly would be to make it so that there was no reason for someone to say, I really felt like I had to have a separate data access layer because, it, you know, I couldn't get my objects in the form I wanted in my business layer or something like that. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? 
So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik Trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. So if you're listening to this and you're about to embark on writing a new application, a new business application, you're probably asking yourself, you know, listening for the, the warning signs or the, the go-ahead, the green light or the red light, as you, if you want to say that, as to whether or not this is going to work for us. So what would you say the ideal sort of kind of application or maybe scale of application would be for the Entity Framework? Well, I'll tell you, I think that the Entity Framework is in a place right now where um, it can solve problems for very small applications, but for a very, very small application, it may be uh, not quite as easy to just ramp up and get started as we want it eventually to be. So mm-hmm. for the very, very low end, you might say, well, something like the Entity Framework is overkill. Um, on the other hand, if you're starting with something small and you expect it to grow in complexity over time, then you might even from the beginning of a small application start with the Entity Framework. As far as uh, on the upper end, I think the Entity Framework will scale fairly well to to large solutions. But as you get very, very large, you have to start you know, doing the same kinds of things you would do with almost any technology where you have to partition your models into multiple separate models and things as it really, really scales up. Yeah. And I would say, you know, as we are going forward, not only will we be looking at building out the functionality for other parts of the data platform, but we're looking at scaling in both directions. You know, we're looking at ways to make it much easier and much more approachable for very simple things. And we're also looking at how do we, you know, how do we scale up to handle more tables in a single model and more things like that without, you know, having the need to partition for performance reasons. Yeah. And well, I mean, this is the same zone that every app lives in. There's a bottom-end architecture where you can pretty much do anything you want because the app's so small. And uh, then when you get to a certain size, things just get complicated. You're, you're dealing with large volumes of data at high velocity, and that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, and and we really, you know, in the Entity Framework, we tried to 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 really go for a middle kind of zone where where we could make sure that we were handling the complexity that we knew how to get to the very large solutions in the long run. Um, you know, you have to, there are times when you say, you, as you're designing a system, you really have to struggle with the, the tension between, on the one hand, keep it simple, you ain't going to need it, let's just start with something and then grow because you can't retrofit simplicity. And then on the other hand, you know, if if the problem domain becomes complex enough, sometimes if you start too simple, you're going to have to completely rewrite it. Uh, and, and we really tried in the Entity Framework to say, well, let's stare at from, from the long history we had of, of, you know, 
data access layers and things coming out of the ADO.net team and other, other folks joining the team from around Microsoft, let's take a look at some of the problems we know that are the really hard problems and make sure that we are at least going far enough down the path that we can see where that solution arrives. Mm. And, and that did present this kind of interesting middle zone where we're trying to deliver something that, yeah. that isn't the end-all, be-all in one release, um, but also isn't as, uh, you know, quite as simple as, you know, some, a lot of people have really enjoyed working with Link to SQL because it's very simple mm. and quick to get started for simple kinds of things. Yeah. So what does this buy me beyond the basic good old-fashioned ADO.net against SQL Server? Well, I, I think there's a whole there's a whole series of kinds of things that the Entity Framework buys you. Uh, you know, at, at the first level, there's the ability to say, let me reason about my data separately from the shape of my database or, or with some level of separation. So if I have some objects that come from multiple tables or if I have an inheritance hierarchy, you know, I can model those kinds of things and let the framework do the work of doing those transformations for me out of the database into my objects. Uh, and then if I change the objects, then back into update statements to the database. So that's, that's one level, kind of a standard ORM kind of thing. A uh, similar kind of thing that you get out of the entity framework is the ability to have much more separation from the particular back-end database than, than you would if you were just working against SQL Server directly and hand-coding the SQL statements. Of course, different back-end databases, Oracle or, or uh, MySQL or Informix or whatever, have differences, and, and you have to account for those. But, but a lot of those differences are relatively minor things that the framework can just handle automatically. And this is a big change for ADO.net. You know, one of the fundamental principles of ADO.net compared to maybe OLADB, ODBC, some of that um, previous history was this idea that my query strings are opaque and the, the framework just passes it down to the database and, and that database does whatever it's going to do. Right. And, and in the entity framework, we realize that we have reached a, a, a point now where we need and kind of understand the technology to make it possible to have a query language that is independent of the back-end database and have providers that know how to do a relatively simple translation process from a canonical format to their specific provider format. Dan, I mean, do you, do you dare say that actually the, the compatibility of SQL is a failure, that you know, we, SQL was supposed to be that common language? Well, I, I tell you, I think in practice, it, it just doesn't work. Uh, it certainly it, I, I can't disagree with you. It doesn't work. But, you know, I remember when that was the goal. Yeah. It's just more I, I and more, more abstraction is better. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a hard problem because you want to have abstraction, and yet you also want to be able to have the richness hmm. of a particular competitive advantage from some database vendor. Sure, but, and, but you also want to be able to control the performance and, and have some ability to plunge deeply into something as necessary. Yep. Uh, I think it, it is a classic problem we see over and over again. You know, it, it, it's reminiscent of Internet Explorer versus Netscape versus, you know, pick your favorite thing once upon a time, and how, you know, HTML provided some commonality, but then right away people wanted to add features that weren't in the common thing, and they had to dream up a syntax. Yeah. And they and they did without a doubt. And and but it's interesting to imagine that I, I haven't seen this in action. That EF will really work against all these different uh, databases. It, it does. 
Um, there are, you know, obviously there are limitations to, to how well we can accomplish that. But if you set aside for a moment Link, which we can talk about, but, but if you take a look at Entity SQL, which is, you know, the, the text-based query language that the Entity Framework delivers, right. um, it's a, a standard canonical query language. And when you write a query in Entity SQL over your model, the framework will translate that into a query tree that is in the shape of the schema of the back-end database and then hand that tree to the provider and say, now please turn this into your dialect of SQL. Right. Oh. And, and uh, that really covers a big part of the mismatch. And then the second part of it comes down to what functions are available. And there's a way that a provider can expose those functions up and then they're available when you write your queries. So if I'm using a function that only lives on Oracle, then obviously I can't take that in a SQL and run it against a SQL server. Uh, but the syntax was all the same all the way down to the function invocation. And then it's just a matter of do I have that function or not. And, that, and that's the compelling part is, you know, how do I get to that final bit of functionality? And, and it means that certain unique features of databases are just never going to be exposed because that, stack of of translation never gets there. Dan, what if I already have an app and I already have data? Mm-hmm. And how how is is this something that's retrofitable in an easy way? Well, yes and no. I mean, it it definitely is an exercise to go and and migrate an application to to use the entity framework. But we did spend a lot of time thinking about how the entity framework fits into ADO.net in general so that I could at least migrate portions of my application without having to rewrite everything all at once. So it's all based on ADO.net. It works on the same ADO.net providers with the same kinds of, you know, provider connection strings and connections. I can take a connection that the Entity Framework is going to use and also make commands directly to the provider the way I would in ADO.net 2.0 and write a transaction that, you know, includes components from both an entity framework set of code and a non-entity framework set of code. Okay. All those kinds of things work. Um, but there's not, a, there's not a simple way to just, like, you know, run a translator or, you know, or something like that. So making it integrate with an existing data structure is not easy. It, it, it's, not, it's not super easy. I mean, you do have to go through the exercise. We can go generate a default model and get you started from a database, Right. And we can generate some classes that you can work with, and then you can work on, on doing that mapping. But, you know, there's not a simple way to just say, hey, take these SQL strings that I was using to issue queries against the database and turn them into entity SQL or something like that. You know, you're going to have to do those kinds of translation steps by hand, no matter what you do. Well, yeah, that, that's absolutely inevitable. I, I guess I'm starting to think about how I'm going to use EF routinely. Do, do I still use a DBA? Is he the guy, is he going to build data structures for me, or does that just happen from, from EF? Well, you know, it, it is a good question. And I, I think, on the one hand, the EF, we, we try to support a number of different models for how your team is structured and how you want to divide up these responsibilities. Um, so I think it can fit in a bunch of these different places. But on the other hand, I would say, it's going to take us a while to understand the shakeout from things like Link and ORM in general becoming much more mainstream. Um, and, you know, one of the models we might see is cases where companies have decided they're going to use stored procedures as their abstraction to the database. Right. And then you'll, you know, they're going to continue developing those stored procedures and doing that work, but you'll use something like the Entity Framework 
to map to those stored procedures. Yeah. Um, we'll see a, another model that I think is a possibility is one where you say, hey, my DBAs are going to, you know, step up the stack a little bit, and they're going to help define my entity model and my mappings and supply those things to the app developers. And so I don't necessarily need to have stored procedures. The DBA can still focus on this modeling abstraction, and we just move that abstraction out closer to the client. And, and interesting to think about, I mean, I think we tend to think about that entity model defined by developers, but there are definitely DBAs I've worked with that would be happy to step into that role. Definitely. And and as we go to even future versions of the entity framework we, where we start thinking about ways that I could have metadata repositories as an option, you know, it may be that the DBA not only builds that model, but places it in a central repository and the app developer write something that at runtime will connect to the repository and get the latest version of the model. Um, and that would allow you to do things like the DBA being able to, you know, change the structure of the database for an optimization without necessarily changing my conceptual model. They just change the database and change the mapping and deploy it just to a central metadata repository and not have to touch all the clients, whether those are mid-tiers or actually even rich clients. It's a fascinating idea, and it, it, it sort of blurs the line on on versioning a database entirely then. Yeah, it, it definitely gives you more options. You know, as you start having this this really uh, data-driven kind of separation between your model and your physical data structure, then, then there are an awful lot of interesting scenarios that, that become possible. Definitely. So one of, the th- um, one of the arguments that's made about this entire concept is that it's generally ways for developers who don't have strong data backgrounds to work with a database. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting. Uh, uh, certainly things like Link do have some value in making some data, data access concepts and even some relatively simple scenarios available to a broader audience that, you know, didn't didn't before think of themselves as data programmers. Mm. Um, at the same time, it, it doesn't take long of working in the data in data-oriented kind of scenarios to realize that fairly quickly, if your data starts getting complicated, you're going to have to understand the database. Yep. You know, you're not going to be able to just uh, uh, pretend that the framework will magically take care of things for you. Um, then we'll have, like, fact, like we did with access programmers. Oh! <laughs> Ooh. I know, I'm sorry. That was a cheap <laughs> shot. And purely for comedic that. effect, okay? So please don't write me. <laughs> <laughs> I, he is trying to be a better person. I am trying to be a better person. Well, I'll, I'll uh, uh, throw you to the wolves a little bit and say, hey, I worked on access, so those guys really can't yell at me. Well, Richard and I uh, both did a lot of work in access, too. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting, Danny. I mean, you, you and I have talked offline as well. You have been around inside of Microsoft in terms of various data access solutions over the years. Yeah, you know, I never set out to be the guy who just moved around a lot, but somehow that happened, And uh, but I've always gravitated towards the data side of things. Well, and especially this whole meta problem of something bigger than the table. Yeah. Well, and, and how do you, you know, I w- I've really focused on the app development side of data. Um, and how do we really make the right abstractions to help app developers, you know, be productive and really accomplish the scenarios? And, and relational databases have a lot of great things, and then they have some ways that they're very different from the way that you want to think about things when you're building your app. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, to, to bring this back to, the, to this question about 
how much can you ignore the database and things like that. One of the things that I talk to folks about when I, you know, when I give introductions to the Entity Framework or do demos and things like that sometimes is when you think about your business logic, there are certain parts that belong in the database and certain parts that belong in my objects and certain parts that belong maybe in some services that I build on top of my objects. And, mm. and really the most effective solutions admit that there are all these different places where you can put different kinds of things right. and purposely take advantage of all of them rather than trying to cram it all into one place where it may not really fit very well. Right. It is funny how we as developers want to have the one right way. Yeah, well, and, and you know, uh, it certainly is appealing to be able to say not just the one right way, but really to reduce the number of things I have to learn and keep in my head Right. Uh, to really think about, oh, well, if I could do it all in my VB or C-sharp classes, then I could focus all on that. But, you know, if I've got some kind of constraint that I can really only enforce if I know the full set of all the values, I don't want to have to load them all out of the database into my mid-tier just to enforce that. It seems to me that the, the, you know, the farther back we go in time to languages and whatever, there was less and less right ways to do things. I mean, it, there's, it seems to be more fundamental programming back when you had C++ and that's all you had. I mean, there are some hard and fast rules that you always must follow. But now that the tools are getting more sophisticated, the technologies are coming at us from all, you know, all angles, the complexity just goes sky high. And there are so many variables that it just gets harder and harder to. I think that's one of the reasons why we, uh, you know, strive for that level of fundamental simplicity. Oh, well, certainly, you know, as, as more people think outside the box, you get the, the good and the bad of that, right? Some great ideas, but now how many ideas do I have to evaluate to pick the one that's right for me? Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's not hard to give people some pretty straight advice that says, the thing that's right for you isn't necessarily the one right thing. You know, the, the, right. the team of developers I have that have a certain set of skills might affect the solution I choose. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Yeah. When you recognize that that software development, at least business software development, is a return on investment game, that I want to spend the fewest number of dollars to get the most amount of results, then utilizing the skill set I have in place rather than retraining them to some other technology is more valuable than actual uh, architectural purity of any kind. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, managing all these kinds of things is, is an interesting challenge because you have to say, well, it's an investment game, but on what time horizon, right? Yeah. And so you have to balance those concerns against also, hey, and I want to invest in my team because then they'll, they'll do right by me uh, next year. Yeah, maybe a, a week's worth of training will save me a month's worth of development. Right. right. It's always a balancing game. It's a good one. So we've walked around Link a little bit. Should we dive in? Sure. Uh, definitely, we can talk some about Link. So, you know, I, I mentioned Entity SQL. I, I brought it up because we were talking about SQL for, with SQL Server and those kinds of right. things. Um, and, uh, and Entity SQL is, a, is an important part of the Entity Framework. But the truth is, many people who, who work with the Entity Framework initially will spend almost all of their time, if they're writing queries, doing it with Link. And, and uh, Link definitely provides a lot of advantages for that. So, I mean, off the bat, you don't have to use Link to use Entity Framework, but it seems to be the common practice. Yeah, well, and, and I think it, it depends on the kind of 
the, the part of your application that you're working on. You know, for, for a great many things, I'm going to statically write the majority of my query. I might have some parameters that I specify in variables, but the shape of the query itself, I determine at the time I'm writing the code and it's all compiled and link works great for that. You've got intelligence right. to help and all of those kinds of things. Um, there are times when what you want to do is actually in the logic of the program, develop the query, and you have a much more dynamic kind of scenario, and something like Entity SQL, where I have a string-based syntax, works very well for that. Um, so things like when we build the Entity Data Source Control for working with ASP.NET, uh, you know, we ended up using a lot of the Entity SQL support for those kinds of scenarios. But at any rate, to, to bring it back with Link, you know, the, the Entity Framework definitely is a first-class link provider implementation and uh you know you can write uh, uh very sophisticated link queries and the any framework will translate those into uh the back end dialect for your particular database um, it is a little bit different than the way link to sql works or some of the other link providers one of the interesting things about Link is it makes certain aspects of how I write my query the same, and then there are certain things that it very purposely leaves open to interpretation by the provider. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the examples we hear about most frequently is that in Link to SQL, the line between how much of your query gets run on the server and how much gets run on the client is purposely kind of blurry. You know, the the part of the idea behind Link to SQL is that things should just kind of work, and you shouldn't spend so much time thinking about all yeah, of those. Yeah, are we details. offloading that responsibility by using this technology? I want you to figure that out. And and there's a place for that, but it is very similar to this question about implicit la lazy loading versus being explicit about when I go to the database. You know, uh, it. I on the one hand, if my application is small enough and simple enough, I don't really want to care. On the other hand, as my application grows, it might be really important for me to realize that to execute this query, I'm going to have to load 10,000 records and then on the client filter down the five I really wanted. Right. Um, and so the Entity Framework took a, a much more explicit kind of approach to the link implementation. And when you write a, a link query and you target it at a Entity Framework uh, entity set, it will, at runtime, determine if it can execute that entire query on the server. And if so, it will translate it and send it. And if not, it's going to throw an exception that says, well, you really need to understand where that boundary is and put in a marker as enumerable is the, the marker that says, okay, at this point, I'm going to run it all on the server, and then I'm going to turn it into an enumerable collection, and then I can do linked objects on top of that if I like to further filter. And that's just part of this trying to, to make sure that as a developer, you're thinking about the considerations that are going to matter to you in the long run. Yeah. Always a good idea. Well, an, an interesting thing. I, I, she, the way I was thinking was not so much as I grow. It's more of a, as the performance becomes a problem or as there is a problem around the automatic solution, I need to be able to have uh, view into that problem and be able to affect it so that to, to fix it in some way. But, I mean, I like the automated solution. I'll use it everywhere right up until it doesn't work. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the hard parts is not so much as you think about your app growing in, in usage volumes. Let's assume for the moment that we have some, you know, general target idea of what that's going to be. But as the complexity of your app and your scenarios grows, 
then the danger of of having all of these sort of automatic implicit kinds of things is that later it may be difficult to find where the problem lies. Um, and so this is always a it's a, a another one of these balancing kind of trade-off things about how much you allow a framework or something to be very implicit and to automatically do these things for you and how much you want the framework to kind of point you in the direction of, hey, this is an axis of something that you should think about. This other stuff I can handle for you, but this is something you should make an explicit decision about. Right. And, and you know, in the first release of the Entity Framework, we, in general, tended to uh, optimize for the let's identify the things you should think about and be very explicit. And then we can layer on top of those some APIs that are maybe a little bit more convenient if you don't want to have to think of those problems. And, and over time, I think you'll definitely see more and more of those kinds of things. But that's also why we also why we have so many samples and blog posts and different kinds of things that already can show how you can layer those kinds of things on top, you know, implicit loading and, you know, various aspects. So uh, by the time this show is published, the Entity Framework 1.0 is out. Where can we get it? So the Entity Framework 1.0 is, is releasing with SP1 of the .NET Framework 3.5 and SP1 of Visual Studio 2008. So, um, you know, you can uh, go download that uh, from the download center and, and install, and it's just completely integrated with the framework now. So, you, you know, for example, you can get started by building an application, going in, and after you start your project, you can go in and say, add new item within the project and pick an ADO.NET uh, data model. Uh, entity data model, and that will get you started in the design experience and and going with the entity framework. Excellent. And things like the DNR TV episode is a great place to go get some. Yeah, you got to watch general DNR look TV. at that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, to your point here, this is not a separate install; it's just part of Service Pack One. That's right. And and going forward, as we talk about future releases of the entity framework, uh, you know, entity framework V two, those will just be part of the standard rhythm of the .NET framework and, and a Visual Studio. Awesome. Dan, yep. it's been great. Oh, it's been great talking with you guys. Always, uh, always a pleasure. It certainly is. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.